Hey guys, welcome to the 88th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have Alex Ferrari from Indie Film Hustle. On the podcast, he uh, has a blog called Indie Film Hustle. Uh, he also has a podcast, Indie Film Hustle, and he is a wealth of information for new and veteran filmmakers. Uh, you should check out his stuff and his podcast. He has he reviews a ton of stuff. He interviews a ton of directors. He His website actually has like a really good setup. You go to it, and it asks you what you want to do in the film industry. And there's six options. Screenwriter, director, cinematographer, post supervisor, distributor, and one other one that Producer? I don't remember. Maybe. Potentially. But... Uh, yeah, you just click on director and you'll see like a bazillion articles and interviews and things that apply to you. So check him out and uh, check out our interview. He was such a delight. Let's jump right into it. Okay, uh, so we are here with Alex Ferrari. What's up, guys? How's it going, man? Good, man. Good. Thanks for reaching out to us and saying let's let's chat. Absolutely, man. I'm a fan of the show and, you know, we, uh, the filmmakers, there's a few of us doing these podcasts. So I think it's time for us to you know, kind of join forces and help each other out as much as we can because it's a small community. It's, and if we can share more information with everybody, the better. Well, what do you consider the community? Like when you say the community, are you talking about directors? No, filmmakers in general. Uh, my community is made up from everybody, from the person who just wants to make thinking about making a movie all the way to the high-end professional that might need help with distribution and they've never self-distributed a movie or, or not even gone down the distribution line. So I get everybody from screenwriters, filmmakers, directors, uh, you know, cinematographers, every, every discipline uh, listens to me. And you folk, you do all types of filmmaking, commercials, co- corporate videos, feature films, everything? Or? Mostly, I mostly focus on independent film. Um, I have had commercial stuff. Uh, since I'm a commercial director and I'm a music video director, I've had episodes that go around that that stuff. But I've mostly, I'm going to say 95% focus on independent filmmaking and being able to make an independent film or series now. Because series are, streaming series are such a big thing now and so many more filmmakers are going towards that world as opposed to film because it's much harder to make a film in many ways sure, than it is to make a series isn't it funny how it worked out that way isn't it yeah. wow. <laughs> and is it um like you're saying a streaming series is there any difference between a streaming series and like a network series yeah uh, a lot of difference money <laughs> Sure. Budget is the first big difference. But a lot of times when you're doing a streaming series... Um, or I mean like a series on HBO versus FX versus Netflix versus Hulu. Isn't it at the end of the day kind of all the same? Budget. Budget. A Who budget has on the bigger H- budget? HBO has a much bigger budget than Netflix, depending on what kind of show it is and who's in that show. You know, Hulu has a much different budget, generally speaking, than Netflix does. But again, or, or, or HBO. HBO has, you know, what does a Game of Thrones cost an episode? Sure. Right. Sure. But what does a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. cost? It, yeah, exactly. Or so, what does a Stranger Things cost? Exactly. So, it, but when I also say streaming, I'm also saying independent, uh, independent series that are streaming. So there's a lot of films filmmakers who are going out and raising a hundred grand, 200 sure. grand. What we used to call a web series, maybe. Right. Yeah, that's a dirty yeah. word, web sure, series. Sure. You can't call it a web hey, series man, anymore. Not when I was making them. Yeah, it exactly. is weird, right? It's weird, right? It is 
just it's super weird because you know I always anytime someone says I'm going to make a web series I'm like first thing you got to stop calling it a web series and call it a streaming series and the real make it's a marketing perception thing you say web series they think YouTube they say I, I say digital series I say digital, digital yeah, series yeah. works fine as well yeah, streaming yeah. or digital series works much better than web series yeah. yeah when I worked at Disney I directed web series but now when I tell people what I did there I say I, I directed a digital series like a digital show episodic yeah. a digital generic. episodic <laughs> show right yeah. I think you just call it a show at this point, right? Yeah. yeah. On IMDb, your, they put TV show or right. something. Yeah, it's always, yeah, because they, they haven't caught on yet to what's sure. digital. And thank God they haven't because it makes you look bigger. Yeah, when right. They use this look at all the TV fancy. they've done. Wow. Look at that. It's funny. It, it kind of has the opposite effect. Sometimes I'll see someone and they'll have like a TV credit on IMDb. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. And then it turns out it's like a real TV show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <right. laughs> but there's just so much content out there. You can't even keep track of it. I mean, sure. When we were, when we were coming up, I mean, you know, there, we could watch everything. Yeah. We literally could watch every movie that came out that week at the video store <laughs> or every series. I'm like, you could really, but now there's what, I think 500 scripted series. Yeah, I think that's the number. That's they, the number, yeah. like, like four, 450, 500. And that's insane. Like I, I know shows yeah. that have massive audiences that I've never seen an episode of. Sure. I think it's more interesting when um, those audiences are very small, right? right? Like, but still have the same sort of budget. Not, not even passion. I'm talking about like I'm talking about that we're in a bubble, right? And that like scripted episodic series eventually, sooner than later, probably are going to start going away, and that well, number five hundred is going to be less and less. I, I would agree with you. But right. even like a Mad Men that won every award, like nobody watched it outside of L.A., right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know the actual numbers on Mad Men, but like it was like three. I saw the number. Actually, I did just see an article with the numbers, and it was it was like three. I think it never hit more than three, four million. Oh, no, yeah. I'm sure it's less than that. Even yeah. less than that, probably, yeah, like 1.8 sure. or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, I remember, I can't remember the exact numbers, but realizing like, oh, more people watch college humor sketches that I shoot than watch the newest episode of Girls. Like, I'd be disappointed with the performance of like a funny internet sketch comedy video right. relative to plenty of premium, zeitgeisty, Emmy award-winning TV. When I was working on the Quiznos campaign, we were doing all these parodies and I pitched them. They had this like lobster sandwich in it. I was just going to do like a video called Lobsters, which is like a, like a right. girl's parody. Sure. And Quiznos based in Denver, none of them had ever seen girls. And they're like, we don't know what that show is or like why anyone would care about it. I was like, what are you talking about? It's the biggest show. All the teens are talking about it. No. And they're like, nope. It's just you. But I mean, you look at YouTube. I mean, you get these YouTubers that are, you know, they put out an episode of them just sitting there talking and they get two, three million downloads. Sure. So that's more than most television shows. You know? I mean, and like millions of people are listening to this show as we speak, right? If not billions, sir. <laughs> if not billions. Um, but it's true, though. And, and the, the, the barrier to entry has gotten so affordable that, I mean, YouTube is a perfect example. These guys who are who have five, six, seven, eight million followers, and they just put out these little videos that for their audience works beautifully with you know either sometimes little production value or it's just them talking or, or, or whatever it is, but it's content. you know. And, and like I said before on another show, an hour of content, if I'm watching an hour of something, it doesn't, cost, it doesn't matter if it costs $100 million or $100, still an hour. And that's, you know, that's, and that's where it, before you couldn't, make an hour of content for a hundred dollars. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because we lump all pre-recorded linear 
video content together, right? Correct. But like the difference between, say, the video of us all like shooting the shit around a, a table mm-hmm. versus a vlog that's maybe a little bit more produced versus Conan or a feature. Yeah, like doing a monologue or interacting with your community or your fan base versus scripted, it all gets lumped together. And it's always been so strange and so fascinating to me. And I, I feel like I've seen a lot of articles recently that are like about the nature of premium advertisers getting upset with advertising against less than premium content. And that there's kind of a course correction. They're going back to more traditional avenues of like broadcast and cable, even though YouTube ad spends are like through the roof right now. So we'll see. Well, Well, nowadays I feel at least when I'm doing like commercial stuff, if it's going to be like a YouTube pre-roll ad, it is literally playing at the same place that the Geico and the you know Little Caesars and the State Farm commercials are playing. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like even though it's not a broadcast ad, it's basically it might as well be. yeah, it might as well be. It's, it's a gonna fifteen get more, or a thirty second ad. It'll get more eyes than a network ad in yeah. many in many many ways. Yeah, you uh, just won't get the cash. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the same cool. exactly. Well, let's um, just to back up a little. So you have a podcast, obviously, yes. Andy Film Hustle. You have a website. You have this whole basically, it's kind of like an educational film education community that you've mm-hmm. built over the past couple of years. And mm-hmm. you're also a director. Mm-hmm. And is so when you set out to create this, you know, kind of like indie film hustle, mm-hmm. was there any connection to your directing? Like aside from your experience, like did you do it to try to get more jobs no i mean i I mean who in their right mind would start a podcast or a blog to get more directing work like that's just craziness funny story it did happen for me (laughs) no and and, and it did happen for me as well but you don't go into it thinking that you're gonna like that was the last it is a bad plan to go start a podcast in order to advance well well and i mean i guess that's what i think i'm asking what i think is worth discussing is like there's people there's filmmakers, we have listeners, you have listeners that, sure. that want to move to LA and mm-hmm. make Live movies or TV shows or mm-hmm. commercials or whatever. Sure. And they're writing and they're pitching and they're doing all this stuff, but they're not that busy. Like what are these, what are the other things they can be doing to kind of generate a network and a community and like basically opportunities for work? Like mm-hmm. for us, this is one of those things. Like, is that kind of part of what drives you for Indie Film Hustle? No, what drives me, I mean, look, there, I wouldn't be lying to you if I didn't say insane amount of opportunities have opened up. I've got, you know, I landed a, uh, you know, a $10 million Hulu job, you know, doing all the post-production for it purely because of my podcast. Like, really? you know, the producer listened to the podcast and said, hey, um, I need some help with post. And I'm like, okay, great. And, let's, and then all of a sudden I got the job. And so you were... Post soup or yeah. I was on that one. I was a I was the online editor, color grader, and I did all the deliverables for the Hulu show, and I handled all the visual effects, oh. like placing it all in the online. Can you tell us what show? Yeah, it was D- Dimension Four Hundred Four. Oh, cool. With Rocket oh, Jump, right. yeah. Freddie sure. W's yeah, yeah. show yeah. or yeah. Rocket Jump's show. Yeah, Rocket Jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with Rocket Jump, um, which was an education in itself. Working sure, with those man. guys and yeah, yeah. yeah, Matt went to college with all those guys. Oh, uh, did you? Well, I'm a little bit older than those dudes. So oh, okay. Yeah. Really, like my roommate's little brother. Was like you, you farted in a in a school chair that yeah, they yeah. sat in. I think I'm three or four years. There was a little bit of overlap. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Dez and Freddie and Matt, those guys were yeah, yeah. awesome to work with. And uh, you know, I picked their brain about how they built their community, and I did a whole, I did, I think, a two hour podcast with Dez 
um, just about how they built, you know, this massive community. Um, but yeah, and then I landed a show that I did a digital, a digital series uh, for Legendary Pictures recently. And that was, again, because of the show. So those doors open up a lot, but it was not my my focus. I didn't open up, you know, I didn't start a podcast and start up any film muscle to go, this is going to get me directing work. Because on paper, that sounds ridiculous. Sure. Um, and, and it's more really that it, there's a great opportunity in meeting other filmmakers, right? right? Yeah. Well, and that's just plain old networking, but also like you would mm-hmm. do it for fun anyway. You know? Right. I mean, I, I have access, uh, and I'm sure you guys do, to you meet these directors or screenwriters or producers or financiers or whoever that you would have never in a million years been able to sit down and talk to for an hour and a half uh, and make a connection of some sort with them. Uh, so the podcast is extremely powerful for that. But if other filmmakers want to try to get in on that game, um, it's going to be tough because it... I mean, you know, you guys have been doing this for two years. I've been doing it for two and a half years. This is a long game. This is not a short game. And you've got to love what you're doing. But but the main reason I even opened up uh, Indie Film Hustle and started is because I honestly wanted to help filmmakers because I found there was so much misinformation out there. And there's not a lot of people that have actually walked the walk Mm -hmm. who were talking. Can I put you on the spot? Sure. And uh, Can you name five of these common misconceptions that you kind of set out to correct? Um, they, they don't have to be the five biggest ones, just five off the five, top of your head. I mean that uh, you should, your distribution plan should be uh, Sundance. That is your distribution plan, that you're going to make a movie and I'm going to get into Sundance and win and then I'm going to get a million dollars and live right. in the Hollywood Hills. That's, that's like one. the Craigslist posting that's like, uh, <laughs> please come work on a Sundance submitted Short film. <laughs> short like, film, no less. Yeah, short, no, I'm short. working on a project yeah. that's being submitted to Sundance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there actually is not a project that is it's not, not submitted. Right. Exactly. So those kind of things, um, understanding marketing, understanding um, how to build an audience, how to distribute your own film, um, just how to put as many tools in your toolbox. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a kind of jack of all trades kind of filmmaker. So I I, I learned every aspect of the of the business um because I needed to. I was, you know, sure. I, I hate to say I came up from the street, but you know, I started in a very small market in Miami. So you had to just to be able to live. I've only been out here for 10 years. And when I got out here, it was Which, just... It sounds funny to say that, but that is about how long it takes to like kind of get yeah, into the community. Like, yeah, right, it takes, it takes a while to, to get going, especially if you came in now. Like 10 years ago, it was a lot easier yeah, than coming yeah. in today. I feel like Miami actually, as a scene, is really kind of like hopping right now. Like I feel like more and more I'm hearing about people shooting in Miami. And yeah, have you cool. heard of Moonlight? Yes. <laughs> Oscar winner. <laughs> Ballers. <laughs> Not Oscar winner. Yeah. And now shooting in Atlanta. Uh, oh, is right, that right? Yeah, they, oh. left, they left Miami. Wait, does the show still take place in Miami? No, I think, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen okay. the news. But they, they did leave. I think it's Louisiana or, or uh, Atlanta. For I'm really behind on my Ballers as well. You I do got to, you know, it's on my list. I really do want to watch Ballers. I've not seen First it season is great. That's about all you have no to watch. Way. Second season is horrible. It's just like it's is great it, in like an entourage way. An it's entourage just fun. way, yeah, yeah. It's just fun, yeah. And yeah. there's like a breakout performance in there. I, I, I would say, look out for this guy, The Rock. No, <laughs> you know, uh, I forget <laughs> Isaiah Washington. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what's his name? He's no. Denzel Washington's son. He's oh, like one of the main football players. Oh, nice. Forget his name, but he's really yeah, he good. is quite good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, I lost what track what we were talking about. <laughs> oh, you're talking oh, about the five things. That, yeah. So yeah. those those are the kind of things I kind of set out to kind of. Show and, and, and under, like basic understanding is something called post production workflow. Mm-hmm. 
and understanding that concept. Because I've seen so many filmmakers walk through my doors who had no understanding about workflow. And they're like, hey, I'm going to go shoot this and I'm going to shoot it on five cameras mm-hmm. and I'm going to edit it on two different systems and I'm going to DIT it or download it you know, on the side somewhere. And then, all, and then we'll use proxies. Then we're going to come back and reconnect the red files and like all this kind of horror stories that cost filmmakers thousands and thousands of dollars or just stops the movie. I know, I, I, saw, I remember one movie was in the, hard, the kid's hard drive for like two years because he could not afford... To get and it was shot cable. Well, it was also (laughs) and it was also shot on the Red One, back when Red One's workflow was challenging to say the least. So they brought it to me. I'm like, I can do it for you, but I can't do this for free. This is going to be a lot of work. And the poor kid was like waiting and waiting until he finally got the money to get his movie out. So those are the kind of things that I wanted to try to help because that's just simple conversation to help, could have helped that mm-hmm. that project go yeah. all the way through. This is how to prep a project just, from the Just beginning. understanding basic workflow. What's like, what do you see between filmmakers that make one movie and like the people that have sustainable yeah, what's, filmmaking careers? What's the difference? Yeah, that's a thing that we think about all the time. The difference between a first time filmmaker getting one movie made and then never making another one again, which mm-hmm. is a common oh, thing we most, see all the time. Most, right? yeah, most film. And what's the, what's the difference between that and the person who makes a living? Directly? Yeah. Like who, what do you, yeah, I guess, and that's what we try to talk about in our podcast. How can you make a living as yeah. a filmmaker right. and not like crowdfund this and do this and meet a rich dentist, you know, like not the like credit card right. filmmaker, but the sustainable life filmmaker that can, Make live forever, yeah. Yeah, have put food on the table for his family and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean... And what mistakes, like what or what misperceptions do people have about that that, that you kind of talk about through Indie Film Hustle? Well, through Indie Film Hustle, I talk, um, let me see, with filmmakers, I, I know more filmmakers who don't do a second feature than do a second feature. Because doing, if you don't know how to do the first one right meaning you overextend yourself, you uh, become too ambitious, um, you spend too much money, have no idea how to make money with it, you're not going to get an opportunity to make a second one. No one's going to hire you, so that means that you're going to have to do the credit card thing. And then you know, when you make a quarter of a million dollar movie, um, chances of you make a $10,000 movie are pretty nil, unless you started at the 10000 world. So you started at the two fifty. So it's, and then just you're done. And then you're done at that point. What I see filmmakers, at least that, that I've seen who've made it, is they're smart about it. Um, I had a friend of mine who uh, had a big hit with a, f- a really low-budget film. What was the film? Uh, it was called Blackballed uh, with uh, my buddy Brant. He's been on the show. And he, um, he made a movie. He used, he used to be the tape vault operator over at Comedy Central. Oh, and cool. he did this like little movie on the weekends I think his budget was like 30 grand or something like that when it was all said and done. And he got some investors. It's like maybe partially improvised as oh, well. Oh, it's mostly, yeah. yeah so it was mostly yeah. like, yeah, because those guys yeah. were amazing improvisers. So they kind of shot a bunch of stuff on like the Canon XL or whatever it was back in the day. And um, he made that movie and it won South by Southwest and he got an agent and he went down that path. Then he got, um, if I'm not mistaken, he did one. I think he did another movie before this big, big one, but he made a big movie. It was a big movie being a million, two million dollar movie, but it didn't do well because it wasn't positioned properly and stuff. So what did he do? So after that, many filmmakers would have just been like, "I'm done." He went out and did another found footage horror movie, mm-hmm. you know, by himself for like no money, and he went out and sold it, 
and he went out and made money with it, and that put him back on the map. Uh, and then he, then he's, and now he's working on a much bigger budget film, and he's been able, and then he does commercials on the side, and does music videos, other things like that that keep him going. Um, but that's smart, you know. You don't give up, and even after you know, a fail, you know, pretty much a fa- not a failure, but because it was a fun movie, but it just didn't make money. Um, it was too it was too commercial for the indie and too indie for the commercial. So he was in that really gray area. But he kind of built out his career doing this, like thinking about what the next step is, and not putting all his eggs into one basket, which I think is a mistake a lot of filmmakers make. They're like, this is the thing that's going to blow me up. This is the big one that's going to get me the Oscar or the Sundance or whatever that BS is, where the the filmmaker who makes a career out of it understands that this is a job, this is one project, and I'm going to have multiple other projects, and I don't put too much emphasis on the one. Uh, it's gonna, It has to be good. It has to be great. It has to get to the next level. Sure. But it's not the end-all, be-all if it doesn't succeed, and you have to have other it's things. It's not your one shot. It's yeah. not your one shot. Look, if... if but it, is there is there kind of the other example? Like, I guess there's one way to think about it. It's like, I want to be a filmmaker. I'm going to make a movie and make the money back so I can make another movie, and I can sure. kind of keep making... Like, I'll make the $10,000 feature, then the 100 then the 250 then the million dollar. But then there's also the guy that's like the dp that's shot like a bunch of movies learned how to make a movie and then went goes and makes blue ruin and the next movie he makes is going to be like a 20 million dollar studio film Mm -hmm. right um or 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 green room which was i think 1.5 oh no way it was 1.5 million way 1.5 with patrick stewart and all these people yeah scale we should double check but like it's not it's not a it's not a $20 million movie. It's definitely not a 20 They don't make $20 million movies anymore. They, they rarely do anymore. Actually, I realized they, the reason, the only way to make a $20 million movie now is for it to be a female-driven ensemble comedy. comedy. Like Girls Trip or something? Girls Trip, Rough Night. Yeah, stuff like Bad that. Moms. Yeah. Bad Moms too. I mean, and they're great. It's like so awesome. But it's so funny that that's like the new formula for a $20 million movie. Because they're going to spend probably 50 marketing it. Sure. Well, and... You know, probably eighteen on cast. Exactly. I think that's probably literally true. Five million. Five million. Dollars. All right, so yeah. we're meet, meet in the middle. But the, right. but but twenty times the budget probably for Blue Ruin. Yeah, Blue yeah, Ruin. But, was but like you a look at movie. you look at Matt. Uh, is it Matt Webb who did the Spider Man? Mark, Mark, Mark Webb. Mark Webb. Right. So Mark Webb. But after a giant music video commercial. Yeah, Mark right. was like... Yeah, know, and then he did five. Like he's doing multi-million dollar music, like commercial. Sure, of course. Yeah, he's a big guy, but um, there are those weird scenarios where like, oh, the commercial director, the musical director, or the guy who's in one feature gets a tentpole. But what's the better strategy? Like, I guess in my mind, it's funny, I, you know, my first movie, like all I wanted to do was get the investors paid back. That was like my number one thing and I didn't care if I had to like sure. go out and like have people pay sure. me ten dollars to show them the DVDs movie. on the, on the yeah? I was literally, I literally, my basement is filled with hundreds of DVDs sure. of my movie. He still hasn't given me one yet. Do you even own a DVD player? Yes, you probably I'm own the one. a VHS. Player. No, that's not true. Everyone, a lot of people have the DVD <laughs> um, player still. <laughs> but uh, well, I think making as many movies as you can is always the best move. Making as many things mm-hmm. as you can, right? Mm-hmm. You always get better. But I think for my next movie. Unless something happens and I get a studio film, which probably won't happen. But for my next movie or even TV series or short film, like to me, it's more about kind of showing my point of view and hopefully proving that I have something interesting to say or like I'm mm-hmm. an interesting filmmaker. Sure. Then it is about making money. Um, oh, absolutely. But the thing is that your film has to make some sort of money in order to continue to make more art. But do you think Blue 
Well, maybe Blue Ruin made money. But. Yeah, you know, I think that maybe what we're kind of circling around is is the fact that we had this dream. I don't want to get back to talking about dreams actually in a, in a minute as well, because I don't. I think dream is kind of a dirty word to me. Uh, I love um, it. But the point is, is that we we grew up thinking that a filmmaking career was one thing, right? And over experience and time. And also the industry shifting, now it's something totally different, right? And tomorrow so, will be something new. And it, tomorrow will be something different. But also like that idea of like striking it rich and moving to the hills doesn't really exist for anyone anymore. That's the lottery ticket mentality is what yeah, I call it. That's yeah. the El Mariachis, the Kevin Smiths. The, the, that yeah. was the 90s. You're, you know? Yeah, you're, you're naming people that it's like so long oh, ago. No, but what about you know the Trish C's of the world or whatever, like people that did music videos and then they did a sequel like Pitch Perfect Three, and then their next movie will be right. But those are very giant musical. But there are very few of those examples out there. Right. Well, right. but there's this giant studio system. I mean, there's all this content, all these TV shows sure, that sure, need sure, directors. Sure. There's all these movies that need directors. Mm-hmm. There's all these digital series that need directors and commercials mm-hmm. and a music video here and there. Right. Sure. <laughs> right. So well, these could, directors have to come from somewhere. Right. Right. Scorsese's well, not going to direct he's all not those things. He's no, just no. going to do the pilot. And- <laughs> but so so we're in this weird Orin and I are both in this situation I haven't done a feature yet right but we're both booking series scripted content pretty regularly okay. right like right. in the million dollar range yeah right? yeah yeah totally like you know if you could travel back in time and be like hey this is how you're gonna spend you know your year I'm stoked mm-hmm. right like just shooting like crazy a bunch of fun stuff but I still want to do a feature why do I want to do a feature there's two good reasons one ego Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that drives me constantly. <laughs> um, but then the other thing is, I think there is a little bit of a resume building aspect to it, and that's I think what Orin you're getting at, and we're all kind of circling around is that you. It's hard to be taken seriously as a filmmaker without a film. Even oh, absolutely. I shot. You know, no, but you don't think if you had you think like Tony Ascenda, who's didn't made, never made a movie. Tony Tony said on go listen to the podcast. He caught so much shit. He had a great pitch and a great team behind him, but like hot, constant shit. He made an American Vandal. He made American Vandal and didn't have a didn't he have never a made a feature. And like was questioned the entire time. We texted mm-hmm. about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, even Paul Briganti, our friend sure. who directs SNL and uh, has done a ton of TV now, he hadn't done a feature before and he just went and made like a tiny, like a micro budget feature just while he's say. doing, even though he's directing like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and all these like great TV shows. It, it's it's yeah. a weird thing the 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 feature which in all honesty is 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 going away more and more and it's, it's yeah, leaning yeah. more towards series. It's kind of for old people. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, but it, I, I look. I'm always going to watch features. It's sure. I, I love features. It's you know. But it's I also love, old. look. I just you know watched. Uh, I love watching Stranger Things, you know, and and binging on that. That's another kind of entertainment. But I think. The feature does still have this this kind of cachet, yeah, especially within the industry. You know, I just directed my first feature last year, and doors opened just because I did this micro budget feature, and people were just like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Like, "Oh, now he's a." F-. And I'd been directing videos and commercials and shorts that are award winning and all this kind of stuff, and the second you do the feature. Everyone just opened, like, oh, okay, now he's a real filmmaker. But do you think that they perceived you differently or you perceived you well, probably differently? Probably a little bit of both. And that you, because when you make a feature, you spend so much freaking time on it that you, 
end up telling everyone about it. You're promoting it. You're really pushing it. When you make a digital series, you talk about it for two weeks and then you move on to the next thing. Well, I think also that what the feature is, like a lot of people that were talking to me, it was people that I had known for years that all of a sudden have a different perspective on me purely because I directed a feature film. Um, and does it, so does it matter if the movie's good or not? In a lot of ways, yes and no. It all depends. Does it have a nice trailer? You know, at the end of well, the right. day, <laughs> I hate to say it, but you know, like, is the trailer look good? If it looks good. Does it look good? Where has it been? Like, I sold it to who? Do you have any famous you actors know, so, in it? Yes. I have some, not famous, famous, but they're all recognizable. Yeah. Everyone you would probably recognize. Oh, that's that person. That yeah. Person, oh, that yeah. Person. That guy died in that yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 But no, no. I actually had like people from Reno 911 and sure, from sure. Mad TV. So like oh, faces, nice. faces. Yeah. It was actually uh, the same actor that was both on Reno 911 <laughs> and Mad TV. No, that's just, <laughs> <laughs> but a really good improviser. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. They have wigs on. It was great. Yeah. Um, but no, um, I lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> I was asking if the movie had to be good, and you said that the trailer has to be the tra- good. In all honesty, in the, in the look, how many people in this town actually watch the film? Right. Well, but I guess to qualify, right, you said the trailer has to look good, so it's pretty hard to cut a good trailer from out a, bad of a bad movie. movie That's right? one. And also, it's hard to get a bad movie into good film festivals. So people aren't going to watch your movie, but they want to know that it's good but, by signifiers. But I think what's more important than getting into a film festival, because there's really only five that matter. Sure, that's true. Yeah. That's only five that matter. And I've been in yeah. over 600 film festivals yeah. all my projects over the years. And I so I, I know the five. The LA Funny Films Festival. Obviously. Um, right, the, the Hollywood New York, Film Festival. <laughs> New York Funny Film Festival. Sorry. No, no. Um, um, but... What's more impressive now is, did you get it on Netflix? Mm. Did you get it on Hulu? Oh, interesting. That is different because I was just another micro-budget film until I sold it to Hulu. Because mm-hmm. Hulu doesn't take everything. Yeah, and let Netflix me ask, take- do you know why uh, Hulu was interested in your film? Um, it, it just hit the right note for them. And, they, and I think it was probably a, a combination of the genre Hopefully, I'm hoping it's it, they like the film um, and um, the cast. Wait, this is the movie about the actress Meg. Yeah, this is Meg. That's trying to figure out um, like she's on the right path. No, she's no. The story is about um, an actress who has is a success. You know, she was successful, and she's a working actress, but she's not 21 anymore, and she's kind of left behind. Like she doesn't do social media, she doesn't do YouTube stuff, and she's like, I've got 20 years of amazing experience. experience and I you know I've been on big shows but I can't get booked because this 20 year old sure, because has a million Twitter followers. She has a million Twitter followers. Like this is so frustrating. Uh and, and then, you wrote this too, right? Uh, she wrote we wrote it together but she's the one who wrote the final we came up with the story and we worked it. But together. obviously something that you could find a personal connection to. I like well, no, I mean, no, she I called her up. I said, "Jill, I want to make a movie about your life." Oh, and she's okay. like, oh, "Okay." And we and we came up with a scriptment. Uh and then she uh ironed it all out and um she she wrote it for her friends, and they you know came over and we shot in eight days. And who paid for it? Um, I crowdfunded it through my audience. Oh wow! So it was, you know, it was in the profit before we finished the final cut. So wow, that's that, cool. That's but that's how you kind of do it. And then then we sold it uh, to Hulu. We we self we did self distribution through iTunes and Amazon. And then I went through. Uh, I wanted to kind of control the distribution on it. And in a lot of ways I use Meg as an example to my, my audience to go, look guys, this is the path. 
I did it, you can do it as well. And I'm going to take it all the way through, and I'm going to show you how I take it all the way through. Uh, it almost becomes a case study for your audience. It, it That's is interesting, without That's question. And I did it in many ways uh, as a case study for myself, mm-hmm. because after so many years, I'm sure you can relate. That you're like, can I make a movie? Like, you know what? Like what? What? what and you make this big mountain you got to climb, and I just kind of cut that mountain down. And I just it's said, funny. I don't have that. I'm okay. like so ready. So, make, so go make it. Sure. I, it's honestly, <laughs> you have a different problem, which is a problem that I have that a lot of us have, which is uh, that you have a job offer to go do a digital series or branded content or whatever. Yeah. And you don't want to turn it down because there's someone saying, "Hey, we want you," and we're gonna give you. you a crew and pay you, and everything's ready to go. You just step in, and the and budget here, is like significant. And yeah, yeah. and here you have yeah, to start. It's like a little bit scratch. of gold, it's a little bit of golden hand, handcuffs. I think honestly, for me, there's a little bit of like creative indecisiveness I'm dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I know I can go make a movie, right? Like I was alluding to the the series that, um, you know, I did the previous years, like I did eight half hour episodes back to back just this summer, right? Like that's two movies in a row. So like, I know I can do that stuff mm-hmm. um, and I'm not scared of it. It's more just like, oh, which one do I want to do? Like, what idea is the one that's exciting? And that, and then tomorrow you wake up and you're 60. Sure, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and that was what I was afraid of. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Because none of us here are 20 anymore. I just turned 59. Exactly. You look fantastic. Yeah. Hey, thanks, man. Um, Uh, The the secret is beer and salty snacks. Yes, obviously. (laughs) Sodium. Lots (laughs) of sodium. Yeah, I'm preserved. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I finally I did it, and 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 by doing that, it did show a lot of of, of my audience that it could be done. But when the second I announced that I went to Hulu, it that wasn't. It's like, oh no, you're not just a dude that just made a microfilm, micro budget film, and threw sure. it up on iTunes. Sure, you know, through an aggregator. Again, it's signifiers, right? It's just Absolutely. like people don't have time to watch your movie, but they need something to grab onto to say, oh, okay. This is good because Someone there's a, there's a thousands of movies there's that they're too dealing many, with. Yeah. Right? So just by being able to say that it was purchased by Hulu, and then we also went with a um, a foreign distributor to handle all my foreign sales, and we sold China, we sold South Africa, we sold a bunch of, of territories, which is shocking to me. Like I well, I mean the no Hulu idea. signifier again, right? Like that's probably part of it. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. And now we have other you know, after AFM, we have other deals on the table as well. So. Off of this little short, this little feature film, a little, you know. Sure, it only budget. took you eight days, bro. It took eight days, <laughs> edited in three weeks. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. You shot in eight days? Yeah. And yeah. you edited in three weeks? I, I shot it in eight days. I was a DP on it. Uh, I did all, it took me three weeks to cu- cut it, four weeks to color it, because I was the DP, so I want to make sure my stuff <laughs> looked good. <laughs> what did you shoot it on? Uh, I shot on the Black Magic, uh, oh, Black Magic cool. 2.5 Cinema. Oh. Uh, we shot two camera. The Brick. Uh, yeah, that little brick, exactly. Oh, fun. And we shot it raw because I knew I would sure. need the help. Yeah, yeah. And I did, you know, and it was the first thing I ever DP'd, uh, meaning the first thing feature. I did a few little sure, things. Sure, sure. But I've been a colors for. Why did you 10 choose years. to shoot it yourself? Because I couldn't afford to hire a DP. And also, I wanted to do it myself. I just, I just, this story was controlled enough that I think I can make it look good because also I'm a colorist. I've been a colorist for 10 years. So I seen what I could do with really bad footage. So I'm like, I can shoot better than this. Right. <laughs> you had like a gaffer and a key grip. The, the crew was three people. It was Rock me. And roll man. Yeah, it was yeah. me. I was I was a, a camera and the director. Uh, Jill was the slate girl and, care, and craft service. Um, I had my gaff and um, my second B camera, and then I had a guy who held the boom. 
because I can't call him the sure, sound sure. guy. <laughs> I actually showed him how to use the the Tascam. Here's the record, and I I bought the gear. It was all my gear, and I taught myself how to record audio and let's shoot. And I did testing beforehand. I took it to my audio guys, and I was like, "Is and this you had good?" Lights. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we had some lights, um, but it was. How, I'm curious, how many lights? Like two, three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. LED. LEDs, yeah, just LEDs on battery powered. LEDs are nuts, man. They've just, changed the whole game. Oh, it's like I used oh. to not be able to shoot anything without like an HMI, which cost no, like forever, 120 bucks a day to rent. Yeah, you need two thousand watts. To yeah. me, the the big change is like you don't see people with hot hands. You don't see gloves anymore. No, you don't need to. Not with LEDs. Yeah, yeah. and they're yeah. so insane. Like you, uh, literally, he had a you know you put a brick on the back of it and we'd stick it on 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 top of a refrigerator. And you'd and, forget about it, and you're good. Yeah, yeah. And you're good, and you just like turn it on. Doesn't get hot. And, sure, you know, sure. Uh, you're like, oh, I don't like that. And then somebody dials something in on an iPad. Any color temperature different. you want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we used mostly that, and uh, I think one day we used a dimmer with uh, a, a china ball for a big out- outdoor scene. Other than that, that was it. So it, I, I really kind of stripped down the process to like, what do I absolutely need to capture image, capture an audio, and tell a story. And then write that story around it. And it was also a scriptment. So it was a mostly improv, but we structured out scenes and had story beats that they had to find. But again, the guys that were all my actors, they're just you know, legendary improv people. Sure. Reno, not They've got it. Yeah. It's like, so well, it was like, you, you could write a script by Wada. Yeah. Why bother? And did you have an yeah. end to each scene? Did you know yeah. when to say cut? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we just did it. was very um, Duplass Brothers kind of way or. Joe Swanberg kind of way of just kind of like a lot of nudity in this movie. There was no nudity, you know. Not no, it's not really Joe Swanberg. There was there was some side boob. There was some side boob and maybe a nipple through shirt. No balls. That's no. There was no testicles. There was no testicles in the movie. I'm not watching it. Sorry, sorry, Joe. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting though because I was just running around shooting some night exteriors uh, that we talked about in another episode. But I wonder if we're about to see kind of a new indie movement of like the three-man, five-man crew. Like I'm curious to see. Because lighting has changed so much. Yeah, every, with all the stuff that we're talking about, right. everything Because like 10 years so ago, much. there was like the DVX100, whatever. Like, the oh, the DVX100. Sure. Oh, the greatest camera of all time. Oh, man. It was amazing. Right, I'm going to name my firstborn the DVX. That made everyone... <laughs> Yes. It, like everyone can shoot cinematic stuff now, right? Yes, yes. But you couldn't light cinematic. So now right. you can it's light the it. LED. So the next revolution, hopefully 10 years from now, is like some plug-in in After Effects that just adds extras. Because that's the only, <laughs> that to me, that's that like the, thing. the well, think, biggest thing that is like, if I want to go make a no-budget movie, to me, like you watch a David Fincher scene, you know, there's right. two guys talking in a bar. There's like yeah, there's 100 30 extras. People. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, it's true. They'll never reuse them. And that's what I, my stuff could never look like that because no one is going to get me a hundred extras for a two person conversation in a bar. Right. Exactly. But um, I think honestly, the next revolution is going to be uh, distribution because I think technically we are at a place where anyone could shoot pretty much anything. Though even the stuff that I just talked about with how I shot it, I mean, I've got 20 odd years behind me. Sure. Sure. You know, there's so a it, level of skill. That's there's, required, yeah. There's some tools in the toolbox you need to be able to 
to do that. Um, so you need someone like me or, or someone who has that kind of skill set that be able to handle all those jobs and be able to do it at a at a decent level. Or or just has made three movies worth of mistakes. Do you know it, what I mean? Exactly. You someone, can be twenty two and have done this a couple times now. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. But you know, there's something to be said for age sure. <laughs> and no experience. Doubt. No doubt. You know, after you do it so many times, it does it does help. But yeah, the more look, I'm sure there's I I know for a fact there's twenty two year olds that have done six features. Yeah. You know, I've, they've been on my show, and I'm like, how many features? Oh, yeah, I'm done, I've done six. I'm on my seven. How old are you? 19. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it bad that I don't care at all about distribution? <laughs> that well, I spend zero I, time I, thinking about it? I think it? that maybe yes, I, honestly. I think that, because uh, Alex, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that what you're getting at is that it's the it's the final point of the of the chain, right? And is the thing that has changed significantly. And if we can master distribution and master our audiences and master how to get our movies into people's hands, then you make whatever the fuck you want. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you're coming from a different perspective as far as I don't care about distribution because generally your projects have distribution or have a marketing budget or have a budget period, you know, when you're doing it. But, you know, for people who are making hundred, you know, even $100,000 features or $50,000 features or $10,000 features, they have to understand not only distribution, but they also have to understand marketing and audience building and, or or at at minimum um, marketing uh, and how to use Facebook um, which is the most powerful marketing tool on the planet. Uh, and if they understand those three things, that's, I think, the, the final thing, because I think it's a crime that any film school today does not teach distribution, marketing, social media, and audience building. It is as crucial in the filmmaking process as lens choice, camera, if you're going to try to do it yourself, if you're going to go into the studio system or you're going to be working with other, you know, other scenarios, but if you're going to try to do it yourself, which in all honesty, most of us, when you start, you start doing it yourself right, right. until and you get to And that's how level. you got to where you are. Well, yeah, I guess it's not that I never cared about, like when I sure. was doing all my YouTube stuff, like you invented all a lot about, of the garbage that ruined YouTube. I, I mean, I was at least part of the, you were part of the problem. I, I was Thank involved you. with the people that. <laughs> did it that would like make a hundred YouTube accounts comment on their own videos and get them to the top of the front page of YouTube. You could game a YouTube like profile or a thumbnail image. Yeah. Oh, oh, you were the, you were the click clickbait. Not clickbait, but I would (laughs) back when YouTube first started, you couldn't set your own thumbnail. It would be the literally the The middle frame. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had a seven minute video, the frame at three and a half minutes was what your thumbnail would be. So yes, you would game like, let's say, like we made this video called Spinning Rainbow, which was about like that spinning rainbow on your Mac, you know, when sure. your computer gets stuck. And, beach ball, right. Yeah, the beach ball of death or whatever. Yeah. And my wife, Kara, uh, there's a shot of her at the end of the video that where she's like about to take her shirt off and then you see the beach ball of death <laughs> and you, you see some cleavage and, you know, it's one of those uh-huh. types of frames. And I made that the middle frame and the second half of the video is just the spinning ball. But yes, yeah, so that's the, that's the thumbnail. <laughs> Um, on the, the video. comments must have been beautiful on that one. <laughs> so, but that's what you used to have to do to get views. Yeah. So yes, I, and my first feature, you know, we got screwed by the distributor. Like sure. they made a million dollars, and we saw none of the money, of all that stuff. But I guess my you don't ev- care as a filmmaker. My evolution on thinking of, about the business mm-hmm. has gone from. I used to really care about cameras and lenses and lights and how am I going to buy this and how am I going to make this and how am I going to get people to watch it? And now I'm much more focused on trying to make something that I think is good and people will like. Mm 
so that it, I can give it to somebody else to like worry about. Like distribution is its own beast. like beast with professionals and people. And like, I don't want to compete against Netflix and distribution. I want to make a show and have Netflix distribute it, you know, or Hulu distribute it. Like, um, marketing is different, you know, and that's, I think even the biggest filmmakers, in the world like are like oh there's like the billboards are crappy or like the artwork is dumb or like look at this justice league poster like who would see this movie with this dumb poster Those posters right? are so dumb you guys yeah but, but well and you look at like pt anderson like shot extra footage for the magnolia trailer it's an and it's incredible you know like there are those yeah. artists out see, there like the social network the Fincher, um, yeah the Fincher fin- stuff was yeah trailers yeah, yeah they're incredible the deadpool one of the best marketing campaigns sure. yeah exactly. so marketing i love marketing and that's like a lot of what is my background is trying to uh, make videos that are marketing other projects, you know? So I think the marketing side is really important. Advertising, I obviously mm-hmm. like love. Yeah, you but just don't want to get into, into like distribution into and aggregate. Uploading deals. things to iTunes and do like, I, I don't know. I guess it's just like if the goal is to be a filmmaker, mm-hmm. why am I wasting my time worrying about? like how well, iTunes and I, the Amazon answer, works. the obvious answer is that you're the only person who really cares. That's the truth. Right. Right. And so unless, but I want to get, I want to make stuff that people care about, I guess. Does that make sense? But in today's world and today's landscape, if you don't have the privilege or the opportunity to do what you're saying, to give it to a distribution person or to give it to somebody to market, uh, your work won't get seen. And as this, Every day that goes by and every minute that goes by and, and another 200 million hours is uploaded to YouTube or online somewhere, it's gonna, the, the waters are getting muddier and muddier and muddier to the point where what do you think it's going to look like, the landscape's going to look like in five years or in 10 years? Right. It's going to be impossible to get anyone to even pay attention to you unless you have one of these big you know, companies that will pump you know, Justice League kind of money out there for your project to get seen and they'll get lost. So if you don't understand the way that works, you might get left behind as a filmmaker. And it's sad, but it is the reality of, and from my point of view, at least it's the reality of where we're at and where we're going. I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. But I guess the opposite thing, look, I think there's something pure about making a film and Mm -hmm. getting people to see it because you think, it it's people should see it sure. right because it's you think you're saying something that's worth listening to um and and there you're really trying to get the biggest audience you can get or at least the demo that will connect to your stuff mm-hmm. and then that there's the other point of view i talked about this on the podcast before like during the writer's strike of 2007 or whatever i made this video about the writer's strike and that's like how i got like my first agent my first manager <laughs> It had got like 20,000 views, not not a ton, but all like 95% of those 20,000 views were Hollywood people, sure. right? So like look at a show like Broad City, like nobody watched that web show, but Amy Poehler came, you know, found it. And now it's those people are super successful and they have this giant show that a lot of people love, but I don't think Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson care about distribution, right? They just care about making the best show they can make and pushing you know but the, the thing envelope. is you just said something amy poehler founder you know without amy they're still waddling and right, trying to get an audience find them because she's like opened up new york times and they're like check out this awesome web series she found it because they knew someone and they said i mean you probably I, have a better I think the, the reason they, they they were ucb people and so like it was a buzzy show and they pitched amy on it 
they lived in New York and hung out at the theater that Amy Poehler founded. That is the reason. And then also on top of that, uh, Kent Alterman, who, who ran Amy, Comedy Central, who ran Comedy Central this time, knew Amy Poehler. Because he w- was on the UCB TV show back in the day. Right. Well, everyone knew Amy so, Poehler. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but like, like, like Amy they were texted friends. him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe not literally, but like, yeah, they were friends. They knew each other from back in the but day. But there's always stories like that. And there's always, I mean, we've all fall, fallen into luck. You know, like, oh, this person knew this person knew this person got me that job and that got me that job. But my point is that um, there's two systems in the world, in the, in the entertainment world. There's the studio or big company system, and then there's the independent. So it all depends on how you go. I, look, I don't want to hustle for the next twenty years, doing everything myself. I would. You I, want an indie film? Chill. You know, I want. I, look, look, <laughs> like, look. A perfect example is Joe Swanberg. You know, he busted his ass for twelve years making his kind of movie. Whether you like them or not, irrelevant. He had an audience, and he made his films, and he was unapologetic in how he made them. One year he made six feature films. That was the one year he, he had to because he had to make money that year. So he had an output deal with IFC and that was the way he did it. Um, and then all of a sudden he found a deal with Netflix. He found a home at Netflix where now he's he's now starting his finishing up his second season. I think it comes out in a few weeks of his series Easy. I'm excited. I love that I, show. I, I love that show too. I love that show. And then he did between that he did a feature um, with uh, with Jake London. Um, is it London, right? The guy from Johnson. London. Johnson, yeah, Jay Johnson, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're thinking of the guy from the Drinking Buddies? Dazed and Confused. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so, but he's got a home now there. The Duplass brothers have a home now at Netflix. But I would argue that those guys, like Joe Swanberg, even though he didn't get into the studio system because the studio system was not interested in his type of movie necessarily, but he got into Hollywood. Like you look at the casts of his films like, sure. you know, from the very beginning, they're like these top Hollywood actors because he not was... Not from the very beginning. Not for not, the first 15, 20 movies. <laughs> how many movies has he made? He's got 30 features. Yeah. He's made a bunch of movies. And he's the first 15 have no, no... Nobody. Nobody gave nobody. a fucking tell. Basically, Drinking Buddies was no, like that was, the first and that was famous like person his, movie. And that was... Oh, really? Uh, no, no, yeah. no. He had, No, he did something prior to Drinking Buddies, but... Um, Duplass, that, Duplass was in a, one of his first big ones, but he was still just Duplass, yeah. and it was they were both nobodies yeah. at the time. Other than that, he was just there was yeah man, he had no big stars okay. in it. Well, I clearly but, don't but, but, have my info correct, but but, but, but the point, point still, is your point still stands though because he just got in bed with IFC at the right time. Basically. Yeah, that, and that was a moment in time that yeah. and that left and he 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 was left IFC changed ownership or whatever and that deal he had went away. But my so point is that his he didn't make movies that like. Like reached a niche market in the Midwest. He or wasn't that, on Google Trends figuring out what the... No, yeah, he wasn't he worrying about distribution. Do. He was making stuff that he connected with and, and at, eventually he found famous actors that I'm also gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because I've studied Joe a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, gonna, I have not at all. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna disagree with you a little bit. Um, the way Joe worked on getting his stuff done is he wholeheartedly was interested in distribution because if he didn't understand distribution, he wasn't going to make any money. And with his kind of films, if you guys, I'm sure you have seen some of his films, they're not for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, as there's you were a lot saying, of balls. there's a lot of balls. Yeah. Um, sure. And there's definitely some nudity. Um, uh, but the, he, all those movies that he did before he started making drinking buddies is still to this day, I think the biggest budget thing he did, which was a $350,000 budget. And his agents were, they just, 
was so hard to get that movie made with Olivia Wilde, with uh, was it Olivia Wilde? I forgot. Jake Johnson. Jake, Jake Johnson. Johnson and and uh, oh, what's her name? God. Okay, uh, Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Yeah. <laughs> Even with those stars, they were having trouble getting him a three hundred fifty thousand dollars to shoot it on thirty five in the old ball of wax. Um, what we can get. Any the, of us can get three hundred fifty grand for those three names you now. Super, now, now. But back then, even then, you know, Anna wasn't. She was. She was big, but she wasn't as big. She wasn't pitch. I don't think Pitch Perfect had come out yet. But what's the movie? The George Clooney movie. She, yeah, but that wasn't. She wasn't bankable. You know, there's a difference between being a big movie. Sure, you're an you're an Oscar nominated actress. That's all nice and dandy, but do you sell foreign? <laughs> right. You know, that, that's again, we're back to business. So if you don't understand these basics, it's it's difficult to you know. I think you only I don't think you need a PhD in this stuff because I definitely don't have a PhD in it. But you have to understand the basics of it. But that's how Joe got going. He he, I think he didn't do anything. I don't even know what number Drinking Buddies was. Sure. Yeah. But I think it was like 25, 23 yeah. out of the 30 or it, something like it that. It was up there for sure. Right. So yeah. it, it, so all of that time, he was self-distributing or, or finding distribution for his movies in any place he could because the self-distribution avenues weren't open back then because those things didn't exist. But he sold to IFC. He sold to uh, a few other, um, you know, indie. He was really like... When you think indie, he's in that indie, indie. And was he going to Sundance with his, any of his uh, Sundance rejected stuff? him uh, mostly. And South by Southwest is what blew him up. Uh, South by Southwest found one of his first few kind features. Like, that was like... Yeah, South by Southwest. Again, a moment in time where it was like... Yeah, it was oh, the Mumblecore by, moment. Yeah, yeah, it was the Mumblecore right. moment. When Mumblecore became a thing, it was because that year, I think... I don't know if it was Puffy Chair was at South by or not, but... It was uh, tiny furniture, and you know all of those those, and he was one of them, and they called it Mumblecore, and that's how he got lost. So he was at the right place, right time. But prior to that moment, he had already done 15, 20 movies, shooting them on VHS. You know, no, you know, no sound, didn't care. You know, just shot whatever. You know, the GoPro would have been fine for him. You know, total, <laughs> just editing it on like sure, iMovie. Right. <laughs> you know, and that was fine for him. But that was his style, and that was the style of the whole Mumblecore movement. But they were, and he said it very clearly once, like, if I can't be taken seriously as a filmmaker, at least I'm going to be prolific. And that's exactly what he did. So now he's at a point in his career where he's got a deal, he's got an output deal, he's doing series, and he has complete creative control, and he has budgets. He's, he's, his big thing was getting into the DGA because he needed insurance for his family. I mean, he's, and if you ever watched that South by Southwest um, uh, keynote that he did, sure. do you see that one? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's insane. Like, he tells you the real truth about what it's like being an independent filmmaker financially so in my opinion i do think you do need to know some of it because if you don't you will even if you're working within the studio system if you don't have a basic understanding of it you will get screwed at one point or another right well and i think oren doesn't it's not that you i don't disagree i, I don't yeah, think there's a right or wrong i guess there's like just thinking out loud here that there's kind of two strategies as a filmmaker you can Basically, make what you want, keep making stuff and, you know, thinking about distribution and like the Joe Swanberg method or whatever you're talking about. Just keep making things and get them to as many people as possible, whether you're building a following on YouTube or whether you're going to a lot of film festivals or whatever. Um, so that's strategy one. And the strategy two is make something that someone in Hollywood will really like and want to hire you to do that same thing again, but for more money without you having to worry about it. Yeah, I, I guess that's the same strategy, though. I think the the difference is that in the circumstance where 
you make the following and no one cares, then you distribute it and you try to figure that out or whatever. And then you make you have to make memento before somebody cares. But without right. following, there is no memento. Exactly. Right. So, um, wait, did you say you have to make memento? Yeah. Yeah. And you said the following momentum. No, momentum. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have to make momentum to make <laughs> to get memento. memento. Right. Yeah. But so you you get what I'm saying though. It's like I I don't think that either you you have to do both at the same time. Right, like you can't try and make a movie that's for Hollywood, and in the same way that you kind of can't make an o- movie for an audience in a certain sense, you just have to make what you want to make, mm-hmm. be true to yourself, be true to your voice, and like make it as good as you can. And then if if Hollywood comes a knocking, great. And if not, you still know how to make money off of your movie, so you can make another one, right? Yeah, I mean, like the the point is that if you if you go down the road and you and you go down this, it's a very slippery slope, by the way. Trying to make something to get Hollywood's attention, take it from someone who was trying to do it for almost a decade, um, it is a very slippery slope where you put all your hopes and dreams into this one project that someone magically will come from the Mount Hollywood and and, and anoint you as the director. Um, that is also very, very. You got to be real careful with that because you know as well as I do. You can't kind of do that. Like you can make something that's super amazing, and, and but if you're aiming it as a specifically to impress somebody in Hollywood, it's a lot of times it fails. I've been in agents' offices, you know, sitting there, and they're like, uh, and they saw my short film and they got me into the office. But they're like, hey, look, these are, the, and they showed me like five other shorts from guys around the world who they are amazing. Never heard of them. You guys have never heard of them, but they did amazing stuff. And, and I was like, wow, how? Why didn't those guys pop? If I'm here, why those guys? And then why did I, you know, get to where I want to go from it? Where after doing this so long, from my point of view at least, if you if you continue to create content that you're true to, if you do it on a budget that you can afford, or either find money to do at a, on a smaller budget and just keep producing those, if you're a guy who has five feature films and they've all made money in one way, shape, or form, somebody will give you money to make another movie. So, and you know, look at, and I'll use Joe as a perfect example, because look, you know, you look at some of Joe's early work, some of it's unwatchable, and I'm a fan of Joe's, but some of his early stuff was really unwatchable because that was the kind of filmmaking he was doing at the time because that's all he had access to, you know? Um, and a lot of people are really turned off by his work, but he didn't give a crap. Like, this is the kind of work I want to do, and I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to make my $2,000 movies, and I'm just going to keep going down this road, and eventually someone's. And that's exactly what he did. He he became. He's to the edge. Like you know, you don't get your first big break until you made 22 features. Right. <laughs> so it, it's it's just a point of view. But I guess continuing to play my devil's advocate role. <laughs> do you think that the type of films you want to make, like look, Joe Swanberg makes kind of these edgy, character. sexy character pieces that mm-hmm. take place in small towns and houses and apartments and cars. He's, that's his niche. Yeah. Right. If you want to make a big visual effects monster movie. Sure. It's make a little a musical. harder to make, make a musical that for $20,000, you know? <laughs> well, it all depends. If Look, I mean... Look. To, make, to be taken seriously, I guess. Well, look, look at 500 Days of Summer. I mean... That's not a small movie. No, but it's... Well, how much was that movie? I, I, I don't know that 500 Days of Summer is like a good example of how to get 
Spider-Man after that, right? Because that's what you're going. Yeah. I think you that it's commercials and music videos are the the. But the, the commercials the and music record. videos, the, the mu- commercials and music video didn't get him that job. Five hundred days of summer did. The other stuff was kind of like, oh, and he's also got. All yeah, that but stuff. it's also Zoe Deschanel and Joseph Gordon-Levitt in. Like, yeah, but I've seen movies that with with big stars that doesn't matter. I mean, the story has to be good. It has to. Yeah, it has but to it's it's not a hundred thousand dollar movie. Let's look. No, it's one. not a hundred thousand dollar movie. It was a few million dollar movie. It was a he, it was a Fox Searchlight film, right? It right. Was so like I, a, I'm. Probably studio gonna say, film. I'm going to probably say it was five million or below. Seven and a half million. Seven and a half million. All right. So that was a fairly decent budget <laughs> back in the day when there was those kind of budgets sure. for that kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how's Fox Searchlight doing now? Exactly. Oh, Who was yeah. the director of Tron? Uh, Joseph Kaczynski. He right. did Halo commercials. Yeah, Basically, David them. Fincher they were amazing. was getting offered these Halo commercials because they were with the same management company. And he's like, well, I can't do them, but check out this guy, Joe Kaczynski. Well, and, that's a hell of a, that's yeah, a hell that's of a, a nice attaboy. That's yeah. a hell of a attaboy. There you go. <laughs> and by the way, Tron is pretty bad, and yeah. so is Oblivion. Yo, yeah. you know what's good though? The Tron pinball machine. Uh, yes, so obviously. <laughs> but the point is that visually, he—I mean, I did like them visually. Both those movies. Yeah. I thought he was a—he's he's a very a, visual director, but story-wise, it didn't. Yeah. It, it didn't work as well. You know, I thought I really wanted to like Tron. So wanted to like Tron. Give that pinball machine a shot. Yes. <laughs> um, but but yeah, there are those stories of these directors who who get these big movies. But I think those are again those shot in the dark lottery ticket things. It's more of the grind of building it slowly. Um, from someone who's tried to go that hack the system and make that one thing that blows you up or gets the right attention, that's a dangerous place to be because you could keep doing that for a decade. Yeah, but you see like there's, I feel like there's more, I know Josh Trank is like this weird example, but he made Chronicle, right? That was his first movie and then he got Fantastic Four and he was supposed to do Star Wars. You see um, even like a Ryan Johnson or a um, Ryan Coogler who does you know, Fruitvale Station, then Creed, then Black Panther. Right. Like, like you see a lot but more look, of those examples, or at least we hear about yeah, but them look, more but look than at the Joe Swanberg. So Fruitvale Station, what was the budget on that? Probably one million or something. Right. Then from there he went to? Creed. Creed. Probably and why 10 he, million. And why did he get Creed? Because he wrote that idea and he came and he pitched it to Sly. Right. And he didn't, and he Sly wasn't it. even into it until after Fruitvale Station. Right. So he had to hustle that second job. And he had the, he had the access because of Fruitvale Station. But that could have easily gone nowhere. And then from there, that was such a big hit. They're like, oh, wait a minute. We need someone to do Black Panther. He would be the per And boom, it's just the luck of... But instead of um, spending a year distributing Fruitvale Station, he spent that year hustling Sly Stallone. You know what I'm saying? He wrote, he wrote the script rather than learning about Every, what the everyone has is. Everyone yeah. has different paths. Yeah, yeah, know? of course. It's a path. Look, I would much rather make a movie for a million dollars and let someone else distribute it for me. But he was at a different level coming out the gate. Where'd he go to school, by the way? USC. USC yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I thought so. So there's a big difference from USC grads that come out because I know a bunch of USC grads and there's a connection and there's, there's, uh, you know, it just, there's a, you pay for, you, you earn the money you spend on that school, you get back. Sure. Well, well, <laughs> knock, on knock on wood to a certain extent. Yeah, Not sure, everybody yeah. in your class, I'm yeah, sure, is sure, a working sure. director. Yeah. Um, I've spoken at USC many times. I, I, I see the students. There, it's, a, you know, it's amazing. But anytime I, people ask me about film school, they're like, "Should I go to film school?" I'm like, "Well, 
yeah, it's cool, you know, and but you can anything you need to learn about filmmaking, you can learn now by yourself. But I'm like, well, I have an opportunity to go to USC. I'm like, can you afford it? Yes, then go. The the connections you'll make it will set you up for your career, and it's the truth. I mean, you're a USC right. grad, sure. so. but you still have to hustle. You still have to hustle. There's no question. But you're hustling here, or you're hustling here. You know, like it's a lot easier to hustle out of being a grad at USC than being a grad at Broward Community College in Florida. You're plugged into a network of people that are really committed to succeeding. I think that's the difference. Yeah. That's the other thing, yeah. too. That they, have spent a lot of money or invested right. a lot of money to succeed. You've got, a, you know, quote unquote, the cream of the crop, if you will, in a lot of ways. You know, even Spielberg got rejected. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I will say this. I love USC. I don't think that the quality of student is that much higher, quote unquote, than any other dedicated mm-hmm. film program. Honestly, like I think that like there's like money and like some book smarts for sure. Like the test scores are like incredible. Um, But in terms of commitment, which is kind of the main thing and resilience as as battle tested as any other program. But the thing is that there's a network. There's a connections that you make and and you know that it's also based in L.A., which makes things very easy. You know, when you've got the guest speakers that you have coming in talking to you. Nah, man, that doesn't matter. You could like, think, those are think, still pretty cool though. Yeah, no, <laughs> super cool. Super <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I always, there's a class, Leonard Malton teaches a class there. That's very sure. cool. Um, but it's all just movies that are going to be out in two weeks. And then the director comes and talks and that's incredible, but that's $4,000 a, a class. You know what sure. I mean? Like that's insane to do. Right. When you could go to the DGA and just like wait in line and go see the same conversation. director and conversation. Exactly. Right. There's always ways around it. If you can afford film school, it's a wonderful thing. If you need someone to kind of set it all up for you and teach you that way, great. But if you can hustle it yourself, there's so much information on YouTube. There's so many online courses. I mean, I was just watching, um, uh, you know, the master classes. Sure. Uh, I, I I have early access to um, the Ron Howard one, and I sat there watching today, watching Ron Howard direct the scene from Frost Nixon, and my mouth was on the floor. I was just like just watching him, and whether you like his movies or not, you know I always like his movies. Yeah, are those master classes worth it? Yes, I've always like uh... depends on which ones. Some some are good, some are not. Like Aaron Sorkin's, I thought was really great. If you want to get into TV writing, uh, Shonda Rhimes is amazing. Um, Werner Herzog's I I enjoyed, but there's a lot of like it's explain. Yeah, like he's, are you paying for all of these? Huh? Are you paying for all of them? I've paid for some of them, but I I thought it was just subscription. Now yeah. it it just turned into subscription. Oh, I see. So now you have access to all of them um, for like a buck eighty a year. That's it. So it's not that bad, and you get access to the one hundred and eighty dollars. One hundred eighty dollars. Okay. So you get uh, access to their entire uh, mm. twenty six lessons. You can stuff. group buy it and review them. Um, so the um, I'm still paying off USC guys. I'll take my time. Um, but I also just saw Martin Scorsese's, and uh, that was amazing. But the Ron Howard one, I just sitting here watching him direct the scene, um, and this like you know, and you're sitting there as the director, and like I see where he puts a camera, like that's not going to work, that's not going to cut, and then you're like, fuck it, cut, 
God damn it, he's good. You know, you can see that that's invaluable. Like, that's much better than having some guy come into Leonard Maltin's sure. class. Yeah. You know, so those things are accessible to us. Like, we wouldn't have killed to have Martin Scorsese talk to us for two and a half, three right. hours. Well, about, we used to have to watch the director's commentary. Right, which is, which would, that was what I did on Laserdisc. Yeah. That's what I had it on on Laserdisc before the DVDs came out. Um, I had the Raging Bull $125 criteria. Hey, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I hope you still have it. That's I do. very cool. I still have it. I have, do you I have, have Casablanca as well? I have Casablanca. Of course, yeah, I have Casablanca. F seven. Fuck yeah, that seven. is excellent. That, was that is some one. real talk about street cred right there. Yeah, oh yeah, I've well, got some old school stuff. As long as we're endorsing all this geeky stuff, <laughs> we should probably uh, start wrapping things yeah. up. Yeah, we could keep talking into, for we, another we could day talk forever too. and jump into our unpaid endorsements section. Okay. Unpaid endorsements. Uh, Orin, you want to take it away? You got something? Yeah, I'm going to endorse the worst thing. But I did see Lady Bird. And I know it's probably going to be up for a million Oscars and all that uh-huh. stuff. How was it? I loved it. I don't know. It's just like so, the way that Matt talked about Hell and High Water when he mm-hmm. endorsed that. That was such a good movie. It's like, so it's, I mean, obviously very, very, very different movies. <laughs> and I actually didn't even really like Hell and High Water that much. But there's something just so simple about uh, the setup and just like really amazing performances. In the very first scene of the movie, you find out who the characters are, what their relationship is, and what they want, you know? And then when you see them either getting or not getting it, it's like makes you cry by the end of the movie, you know? And it's a comedy. It's hilarious too. Right. Um, but the, you know, the lead actress who nobody can say her name, Sarsha Ronan or whatever, um, she's doing like an impression of Greta Gerwig. She's Irish, but she's like plays this like girl from Sacramento. You know, it all takes place I in know, Sacramento. I know. It's about my childhood. But I think that maybe <laughs> a different part of town. That I grew up in. Well, that's part of what the shows like. She's from kind of the wrong side of the tracks. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I want to see that it's one. It's great. So, so check it out and just it's a good one to just study and how simple a story you can tell. And I think we already <laughs> endorsed the Meyerowitz stories. <laughs> yeah, Paul did. But, oh, um, I, I want to yeah. see that. Is that good? But it's free. It's on. Well, I mean, if you have Netflix, you yeah. can watch it. And it's um, it's of a similar genre, but it's another example. That one's like a little more complex of a. Story. I directed it. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, but there, you can see why they're a good couple. <laughs> um, I think they're like a good double feature if you watch them oh, on fun. separate nights. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I just finished watching uh, yesterday, actually, uh, do you guys watch the, the net, you watch the Marvel stuff on Netflix, like Daredevil and... Not uh, really. I watched yeah. Jessica yeah. Jones. What'd you think of Jessica? Jeff- I love Jessica Jones. She's great. It was a great series. Um, but I heard Punisher is really good. I just I finished watching Punisher. Oh, you got into It's the best one of the ball. Really? Oh, cool. Without question. And the reason why I loved it so much was it is the most grounded out of all of them because it's just like these two dudes. There's no superpowers. There's no nothing. It's just like straight up. And the way the story is intertwined with the backstory of the villain and how the villain becomes the villain and how that's all connected. Who's the villain? Uh, I don't want to don't want to spoil it. Um, it's not like a known thing. That's not no. It's not straight. You, you're figuring out who the villain is okay. along the way. You won't know who the villain is. I think until like, you know, eight episodes in or something like that. So it, it keeps you on your toes the entire time. He actually wears the skull. I think three times in the entire series. So it's all just him. You know his backstory, building it up. It's just so. And he's and it's what's the name of the actor? Oh God, John, the guy from uh, Walking Dead. Yeah, I guess I, I don't know. Really but he's in the Tank movie. Yes, yes, yeah, he is. So oh, good. He was in Baby Driver too, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah, in Baby was. Driver as well. Uh, he's amazing. John 
B something. I can't yeah. say his last name. Um, but it's if if you're even remotely interested. No, in we'll that. watch it. We're like so. My good. wife and I. It's pretty have violent. So though. many shows. Oh, that dude, we're like catching it. up on. That's what we were just talking about. Look at all the content that we have to. Con- I just binged all of on. Curb season nine. Yeah. Well, really I'll, I can help you out, Orin, with my endorsement, which is just the pilot episode because the rest of the series hasn't been created yet mm-hmm. for Love You More, which is the Amazon, you know, they always do their pilot seasons where they supposedly we vote on whether or not a show is coming back, but I have a hunch that they've already decided everything sure. already. But Love You More is Bridget Everett's new series. It's fucking yeah, great. Is she? So Bridget Everett, um, you would know her from, uh, she was in Patty Cakes, which didn't do great, but she's in Trainwreck she's kind of like a New York kind of cabaret comedy person mm-hmm. um, who's been around forever. And she would, at the end of every... Oh, she's in Lady Dynamite as well, if we're talking Netflix shows. Mm-hmm. But um, she was always at the end of oh, the yes, Amy I, Schumer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, uh, every Amy Schumer se- season, it's like she was the final sketch. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's got a, her own show on Amazon Prime called Love You More. It's like in this realm of like grounded comedy, kind of slice of life stuff. Um, but, uh, I just found it to be really like raw and funny and emotionally true mm-hmm. and also really like over the top in ways that are awesome and incredible. And I was nice. super excited. It is a mm-hmm. very adult show. Mm-hmm. You see, some not for D, the faint of heart. You see some D in the very first scene. So like nice balls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice balls. stoked. I guess technically it's the second scene. Anyway, <laughs> love you more on Amazon. And how do you Prime. watch it? Um, Amazon Prime. So Alex, <laughs> yes, thank sir. you so much for hanging out, man. Thank you, man, for having me, guys. I appreciate um, it. How can listeners learn more about you? Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at IndieFilmHustle.com. Uh, you can find me on uh, iTunes as well for my podcast and on YouTube. I just type in Indie Film Hustle anywhere on on, on the on Google first. On a computer, you will <laughs> find Siri. me. Should I ask Siri? Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask her, where's my phone? Boy, Orin, you love asking Siri. Well, Orin's asking about Indie uh, Film Hustle. All right. Well, while Siri is letting Oren down, <laughs> Alex, sorry. you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow and you can follow our show at Just Shoot It Pod. And I am at Smitey Pileg and Alex is at, at Indie, Indie Film, Film Hustle. Hustle. It's a pleasure, guys, being here, man. Yeah. Cool. And uh, this episode was edited by Christopher Robert Gray. And the music is provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And thanks so much to our webmaster, Ewan Williams who has helped catalog all the all of our episodes. And if you're looking for any unpaid endorsements or anything, check out our website. We got it all there, justshootitpod.com. And uh, please write us if you have any questions. We love to hear from you. Review us on iTunes, all that stuff. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.